All right, well, hey, Mercy Fellowship, once again, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Curtis, I serve here at the church as associate pastor. Honored to be preaching this morning to you guys. A uh, few announcements just before we go. Uh, I want to start off with just saying, hey, uh, for those of you that were here for our Easter service, did you have a good time on Easter? It was a great time, yeah. Hey, go ahead and clap for that. Yeah, so we had a great time. On behalf of the staff, it was a, just a joy and a privilege to put that together, and so we had a lot of fun. If you've got pictures with your family, though, and you have yet to see those, those are going to be on our Facebook page. You can go ahead and take a look there to grab your uh, pictures. Also, um, just a few other announcements. Man camp is still coming up. Guys, you still got time to sign up. You can grab this form on the back of the info desk. There's a QR code to sign up for. I'm going. Pastor Chris is going. Uh, most of the men are going. So if you're here by yourself on a Sunday where none of the men are embarrassing for you. And so uh, make sure that you sign up for this. Should be a good time. I want to make sure my mic's doing good as well. Also, uh, next week, we're starting a new sermon series in 1 John called Abide. Uh, we have these scripture journals, and if you haven't grabbed one, you can grab them on the back desk over there at the info desk, and make sure you grab these so you're prepared for next Sunday. And uh, let's see. Last one, summer camp coming up for, uh, for teens, 6th grade through 12th grade. We're partnering once again with some other churches. If you're interested, you can grab one of these forms once again over at the info desk. Okay, that's all I got now, right? Let me go ahead and just start with this. Uh, so I've been a Christian now for about 13 years, and, and when I first became a Christian, even though I grew up in a, a Christian household, uh, there was just a whole new world that I didn't know. I trusted Jesus, but I didn't know what Christianity was. And so along with my Bible, I was, I was reading other books trying to understand this thing about following Jesus. And as I was learning about it, I quickly recognized there's often a disconnect between what the Bible says and how we as Christians operate, if we're being honest. It doesn't always line up nicely. And one of the things that I saw, and I still see to this day, is that there's a distinction that often takes place within Christianity of sacred versus secular, okay? Kind of help us understand this a little more. There's a Christian rapper named Lecrae, and uh, before he was a Christian, he was driving in a car with one of his friends, and they were listening to some music that had bad lyrics in it. And they were driving past a church, and his friend turned the volume button down on the radio, and he said, hey, bro, what are you doing? And he said, hey, bro, have some respect. It's a church. And like, that's the idea, right? The church, well, the church, that's a sacred place. The curb, well, maybe that's 50-50. It's still kind of up for debate. And then the streets, well, that's secular. That's off limits. Uh, the, the, this has permeated itself into our culture, so much so that we have Christian and non-Christian music. We have Christian and non-Christian movies. Uh, the, the Christian movies are, are, are not first rate, and let me say that. We have Christian and non-Christian counselors. We have Christian and non-Christian uh, nations, okay? There might be some good that comes from this thinking. I'm not saying there's just throughout the bay with the bathwater. My primary issue with this, though, is this, that this thought of sacred versus secular doesn't exist in the Bible, in fact, it doesn't even exist with the apostles or the early church fathers. None of them thought this way. Uh, I quote Matthew 28 often because I think it acts as a good north star for us as a church to help redirect our mission. But Jesus, before, after being resurrected, before he ascends up into heaven, he gives the church a mission. And it's called the Great Commission because Jesus is helping us in this mission. 
And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And all of you, if you trust in Jesus, would say, yes, Curtis, I agree with that. All right? Amen. That's wonderful. I think functionally how we operate, we believe Jesus has authority in heaven, but in earth, he doesn't really have any authority here. He doesn't really have any jurisdiction here on earth. Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, what this means is this. This all belongs to Jesus. Not just heaven, but earth as well. Uh, there was never a distinction, like I already said, in the apostles and the early church fathers. And the result of this was that they often died because of it. They were martyred. They were treated horrifically. They were in the time of the Roman Empire where the main saying was, Caesar is Lord. That was the confession of the nations. If you wanted to have a good life, just confess Caesar is Lord. The early apostles couldn't do this. They couldn't say, hey, Caesar's Lord of the nations and Jesus is Lord of my heart. And like how easy that would have been to make that distinction, right? Well, yeah, no, Jesus has authority in heaven, but here on earth, Caesar has authority. Someone else has authority. They were too convinced, too compelled to say otherwise. And so the result of that church was this. The, the, the church expanded. The church grew. And it grew primarily because of this thinking. It all belonged to God. And because of this, therefore, they were ferocious in their evangelism and in their proclamation that Jesus was Lord. And that means no one else is. The call for Jesus' lordship goes to all people, in all nations, in all places, in all times, because it all belongs to him. So what happened because of this? Well, the result of their thinking is this, that the nations were changed, and I would say they were changed for the better. Uh, you think about this, Mercy Fellowship, the fact that 2,000 years later, we're here on the other side of the globe from Israel, and we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, that's pretty nuts. That's a testament to God working in this world and having authority in this world, that we're all the way on this other side over here. So the nations were changed for the better. Okay, but let's tease that out. What does it mean that the nations were changed for the better? It means that the nations were and are being restored to what God wants them to be. So here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about restoration, okay? So it's a biblical word. It's not one typically used in our common vernacular. Restoration has with it the idea of things that are broken, they're mended together, and they're not just mended together at 50%, but all the way back to 100%. Things that have been stolen are retrieved. Things that have been lost have been found. Things that die are, are brought back to life. This is the idea of restoration. And so I know this to be true. When I talk to many of you and you in turn talk to me, none of us are looking at our cities and saying, man, what beacons of human flourishing they are. None of us are. Ruth and I just this last week, we were in Portland and we we're like, man, Seattle looks pretty good. It's all right, you know. It's not too bad. Right? None of us are looking at the cities and saying, man, these are beacons of human flourishing. Right? It, lo it looks like there's decay that's going on. Beyond the societal level, though, and the, for us as individuals, our lives are often marked more times than not by pain and suffering, heartache, decay, like even death. 
so many of you know my story. For those of you that don't and are newer to our church, my dad died when I was 12. He died of a heart attack within an hour, and it changed the trajectory of our family's life forever. It was really hard growing up as a teenager trying to find out what it means to be a man without a man in my life. Um, just about a month ago, for, my wife, uh, for me and my wife, we went to a funeral for my wife's uh, cousin who overdosed on fentanyl. This world is going to beat us up. This world is going to cause us pain and heartache. And it's often in those seasons of pain and heartache we ask the question, hey, is, is God present in this? Because he really seems absent. Does God care about my life? And does God care at all about our societies and our cities and the things that are going on in them? And what I want you to know is this, and I want to persuade you this morning, church, is this, that the heart of God for your life is one of restoration. The heart of God for our cities is one of restoration. This is what God desires for you and for me. In fact, God is so committed to your restoration that he was willing to die for it. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to unpack this by looking at the meta-narrative of Scripture. That means that the Bible, yeah, it's 66 books and it has all these different authors, but it ultimately has this overarching theme that happens throughout the Bible. And for our context today, we're going to be looking at the theme of gardens. Right? Gardens are throughout the Bible, and you kind of need to look at it like a detective and say, okay, what's it saying? What's it not saying? Why is it bringing up gardens at this point? So we're going to look at three gardens. We're going to look at the Garden of Eden. We're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to look at the Garden of the Empty Tomb. Garden of Eden, number one. Genesis 1, it begins with this acknowledgement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This helps us, church, right off the bat, acknowledge that, no, God's not only the creator of heaven and then on earth we got to figure it out. No, he's the creator of heaven and of earth. It all belongs to him. Genesis 1 chronicles then how God created the earth in six days, and whether you believe that to be literal or figurative, we're not going to talk about that now. You watch a YouTube video, read a blog, something else other than this morning, okay? Genesis 1. Genesis 2, God then goes ahead and he takes rest on the seventh day. And, and Genesis 2 is interesting. It, it details for us the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve. But it also goes into detail about the Garden of Eden and what the Garden of Eden was. The Garden of Eden was a place of life, of joy, of, of human flourishing, of purposeful work. And I think what often gets missed when we talk about the Garden of Eden is that, yeah, the Garden of Eden is a place of life and joy and flourishing, yes, but it's only those things because God is there. It's only those things because the presence of God is there. If God's presence was not in the Garden of Eden, it would not be the Garden of Eden. There would be no joy, no life, no purpose. And so it's an imperative for us as followers of Jesus, as we're talking about restoration, restoration of our cities, restoration of your life. It's an imperative for us that, no, God is a part of the equation. He's the biggest part of the equation. He is the thing that makes all this work. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, talking about in detail uh, the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 talks about the fall. This is where sin enters the world. This is where we first get a glimpse of, of this new character that enters into the story, and it's a serpent, and it's Satan. Adam, he was given instructions from God, hey, 
you can eat of any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat of this tree, you will die. And so what happens in chapter 3 is this. The serpent is talking to Eve and deceives Eve into eating of this tree. And, and Adam's at failure in this. We often think in our minds that, okay, Adam's a couple miles down the road. He's not present. That's not the case. Adam is right next to Eve and says nothing. His sin is one of omission. He doesn't speak up when he's supposed to speak up. This is how sin enters the world. And let me just pause and say this for a moment. Sin entered the world through passivity, and sin continues to enter the world through passivity. That when we, things are wrong and things aren't right, we don't speak up. We don't say, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. This isn't right. And it's as the spirit of omission that allows sin not only to enter the world in Genesis 3, but continues to allow sin to enter into the world. And so I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. The result of them both eating of this tree and sin entering the world is this. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from, walking, uh, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel few observations we get from this text. Number one, the result of sin entering the world is that they had shame and they hid themselves. But the result of sin first entering into the, uh, the earth, the, the result and the reaction of Adam and Eve is that they have shame and they hide, right? They hide from the presence of God. This is why they cover up their nakedness with their fig leaves. This is why they run away from God. Their relationship with God is fractured due to sin, and, and they know it. And because they know it, they're embarrassed. They're kind of acting like children who run away from their parents when they've messed up. Adam and Eve, they're running away from their heavenly Father. Uh, Mercy Fellowship, you know this to be true, don't you? No, you don't need to do a show of hands, but how many of you have done something that you were so embarrassed of, so shame-filled of, that your reaction was that I just want to isolate and I don't want to talk with anybody. That same experience, you, you understand that? The reaction that takes place is that we want to distance ourselves and hide from others. This is what sin does. Sin isolates us from God. It fractures our relationship with God. Not only that, though, it fractures our relationship with others. This is why they hide from God, but also this is why, if you read the story, this is why Adam blames Eve. Right off the bat, there's a disconnect that's taking place in their marriage. 
Right? Perhaps some of you, you come in today, you're, you're filled with shame and sin. And let me just go ahead and give you some pastoral advice. I think the best thing you could do is if you're filled with shame and, and, and sin and even just the, you want to isolate is to not give in to that. Rather that you would expose uh, what the shame is that you're dealing with. And the best way that you can expose the shame that you're dealing with is by bringing it to light. And how you bring it to light is by speaking about it. Speaking about it with someone you love, speaking about it with someone you really trust and respect. And once you bring it to light, and once you actually expose it through words, what often happens is this, healing begins to take place. Healing could be a long road of recovery. I'm not saying it's immediate, but healing can begin to take place. You see this actually take place. I'm going to bring up Harry Potter. If I offend you, I don't mean to. It's just what comes to mind. Uh, but you, you think about it with Harry Potter. They, they couldn't say the word Voldemort in those books and in those movies because it was so strong. It's so powerful. And it's not until they actually can say the word Voldemort that it begins to lose its power. And that's an absolutely true thing in reality when it comes to our shame and our sin. You need to speak about it. You need to talk to people about these things that you're going through. First thing we see in this section is this. They had shame and they hid themselves. The second thing we learn from the section of Scripture is this. Sin has consequences. We don't have time to cover it today, but if you go further on in this chapter, what you'll recognize is this, that, that there's consequences because of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. For, for Eve, the result is this. She will have pain and childbearing, and as well, she's going to desire to be dominating her relationship with her husband. Right off the bat, sin enters in. She's going to have pain. And then for her and her husband, they're going to have a lot of conflict in their marriage. That's what it's saying. That's a result of sin. For Adam, the consequence of their disobedience means that the ground that he's going to labor on is going to be cursed. Yeah, the, the, he might be able to produce crops, but mixed in with the crops is not always a fruitful crop or harvest that takes place. On top of that, it's going to be mixed with thorns and thistles. It's going to be a hard, laborious work that once upon a time was always fruitful, will only sometimes now be fruitful. Sin has consequences, Mercy Fellowship. You know this to be true. I'm not saying anything you don't know. I'm just showing you where it all began. If you do A, then B will take place. If you get drunk, there's going to be consequences. I don't care that the bottle of vodka says absolute freedom on the side of it. If you drink to the bottom of it, you will not have absolute freedom. All right? Use whatever analogy you want. If you get drunk and drive, there's consequences for this. Sin has consequences. Like even with this text, what happens is really interesting within church. We read this story about God and how God responds to their sin, and we often think, oh, God, you're being heavy-handed. Come on, they just ate tr fruit from a tree. You're, you're being a little uh, overbearing. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Let me assure you, God is not. God knows the, the destruction of sin. God knows how corrosive and horrible and death-breeding uh, sin is. Sin destroys. Sin destructs. We look at our cities today. It is due to sin. Death happens today due to sin. John Owen, he's a Puritan from the 1600s, and he has this quote, and he says, those who have small views of sin have never had big views of God. 
and he's right. We're, we're often blinded by sin to actually see God for who he is and all of his glory and all of his wonder. And we think, you know, hey, God doesn't really know what he's talking about. God doesn't really know what leads to human flourishing. And what we need to acknowledge is this. We need to have a big view of God. If God is our creator, then he knows who we are. He knows who you are. And he knows what produces human flourishing and what doesn't. Sin has consequences that we cannot escape. Sin has consequences, number two. Number three, we're playing with this theme of restoration today. Number three is this. God will restore that which Satan and sin has broken. Verse 15, church, I feel like we could probably all memorize it. We talk about this verse all the time here at church. But here's what takes place. God, he, he's bringing curses down upon Satan because of Satan's deception against Eve. And after placing curses on him, he gives us the very first good news we get in the Bible, the very first gospel, if you will. And it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A promise is being made here. A promise is being made that one day there is going to come someone from, as an offspring of Adam and Eve who is going to bruise, or other translations say strike the head of the serpent, and in turn their, their uh, heel will be bruised. And this offspring of Adam, he is a, a son of Adam. The word Adam literally just translates man. So once again, we put on our detective hats, and throughout the Bible we're looking for a son of man who is going to come and restore re relationship with God. That's what we're looking for. And what has been destroyed? Human flourishing, joy, happiness, purposeful work? Yes, all true. Most importantly, though, it is relationship between God and man. I already said it, but just allow me to re-say it for this purpose. The Garden of Eden is not the Garden of Eden if God's presence is not there. Like, the most important thing for your life is not just that God would make you happy and that God would give you joy and that God would give you purposeful work, although I desire that for you. More than all of that is a relationship with God. That is the most important thing because it is from that, from our Creator, that we begin to understand who we are, how we function, how we operate. In fact, it's even from that place that I'm going to show you that this world gets restored and people help in the restoring of this world. God will restore that which Satan and sin has broken. Throughout the Old Testament, we get hints of this. Whether it's with Abraham or Moses or, or the judges or prophets or priests or kings, throughout the Old Testament, we get little, little sense, if you will, from the Garden of Eden. That echoes, that God is saying, hey, I, my intention is to restore this world. Yeah, I know it's broken. Yeah, I know it's hard. But my intentions are to, to make all things new. And we get to all the way to the New Testament, jumping forward. Get to Luke's gospel. In chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, he gives us a genealogy. The places we all skip, right? The places that are so boring. This is a genealogy. Womp, womp, right? The places that we want to move on from. It starts with Jesus, and the genealogy ends with Adam, the son of God. Luke is making the case for us that the long-awaited one who is going to come and restore things has in fact arrived, that it is in fact Jesus. He is going to be the one to crush the head of Satan and deal with our sin 
and restore relationship with God. And you get a picture of what this restoration looks like. You don't need to guess about it when you look at Jesus' life, okay? When you see Jesus' ministry begin as an adult, he restores those who are lame and he makes them walk. He restores those who have leprosy, who are dirty, and he makes them clean. He restores those who are dead and makes them alive again. He restores those who are filled with shame and want to isolate and restores them to a relationship with God and others. If you're a follower, hear me on this, Mercy Fellowship, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this is your story. Jesus Christ is at work, whether you know it or not, restoring your life. And praise be to God for that. And some of you might respond and say, hey, I don't know, Curtis. I go to the hospital a little more than I used to. I have a few more aches and pains in my body than I used to. The Apostle Paul, he would encourage us with this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You hear that? C.S. Lewis went ahead and talked about this in the same line of thought. And he goes on and he says, hey, you're not a body with a soul, you're a soul with a body. Kind of makes you think about it in the correct order, right? Your soul is the most important thing you have that God has given you. And he is changing you day by day, working in you day by day to make you more and more like Jesus. This is what restoration is looking like. Our outer body, yeah, it might be wasting away, but our soul is being renewed day by day. God is in the business, church, of restoring his creation. So, so we already talked about this in the beginning, but let me just re-ask it, okay? When you look at our world, does it look like it's being restored? No. I think if we're honest, I hope you can be honest at church, I think if we were honest, we would say, no, it doesn't look like it's being restored. We're honestly in the same place the people of God were during Jesus' life as well. During Jesus' life, people are looking for a Messiah. Who is the Messiah? What's he like? What's he going to do? How's he going to accomplish getting us out of the hand of Rome? Going to make us a free nation? Right? We ask these same questions, don't we? Who's our Messiah going to be? How will our cities get better? When will things start to improve? Who is going to come and restore things? Uh, we're looking for a Messiah. This is what they were looking for. And it's interesting, because when you look at the New Testament, Jesus will talk about himself as the Messiah, but what he refers to himself more than anything else is that he is the Son of Man. Roughly around 81 times, Jesus calls himself the Son of Adam, reminding us of the fact that he is the long-awaited descendant of Adam who is going to redeem our lives, our cities, and our world. This is him. I, you know, I need to be reminded of this, if I'm just honest with you guys. I need to be reminded that Jesus is the one that, in fact, does restore this world. There's a few people in our church here that do, uh, that do some mercy works, and, and they work in social settings. And I was chatting with this one gal who works with, uh, with juvenile detention kids. And I said, okay, hey, how, how do kids get out of, of uh, jail and get out of these cycles of, uh, of going back into to crime? And she said, it's only Jesus. Uh, hey, hey, I, I'm the pastor. That's the Christian answer. Thank you. I appreciate you doing that. Thank, I really like it. What's the bread and butter? Come on, shoot it to me straight. It's only Jesus, Curtis. Oh, really? 
Like, I hate that my reaction is that I'm surprised by that. But I am. I was chatting with a, another person in our church who works with helping people get out of homelessness and get into homes and, and kind of re-educating them back into life. And I said, hey, how, how do you go ahead and you get them out of these systems and, and you know, back, onto a, back into life and back with jobs and in homes? And she says, it's only Jesus. Hey, I get it. No, I'm the pastor. My fault. Yeah, hey, I get it. Jesus is the answer. Really, what is the bread and butter of it? No, Curtis, it's only Jesus. People only succeed if they trust in Jesus, and by and large, they typically don't succeed if they don't trust in Jesus. I don't have anything else for you, church. I don't have a different message for you. But what I do see from the Bible and what I do see from the people I chat with in this church is this. What redeems and restores this world is Jesus. We don't have another message, and it's something that we often forget and need to be reminded about. God's intention is to restore this world back to what it is supposed to be, okay? So let's go ahead and continue on. In the first garden, we have a couple characters. We have God in chapter 1. We have Adam and Eve in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, we have Satan show up into the story as well. And we'll fast forward now to our second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the garden that Jesus is in before he is arrested and eventually led to his crucifixion. In this garden, we have Jesus, okay? That's one of the characters. And who is he? Well, he's God, and that's one. But he's also the descendant of Adam and Eve. He is the son of man. Another character that we have in that story, though, is this, Judas. Judas is going to show up and betray Jesus. What's really interesting about this church is this. It says earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, at that last supper meal, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that picture that's very famous, the last supper, as they're taking bread and as they're having wine, it says Judas ate bread and then Satan entered into him. So he's possessed by Satan. So in the second garden church, we have the Son of Man, we have Satan for a second showdown. In the first garden, the first Adam failed against Satan and his schemes. In the second garden, how is the second Adam going to do against Satan and his schemes? We'll go ahead and read it. John 18, 1 through 9. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? But they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. A few points from this section, church. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He doesn't mince words with us. What's taking place is this. When they ask who is Jesus and he says, I am, it's not just that he's responding to their question. No, he is responding with saying, the, I am the great I am. This harkens all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is having a conversation with God in the burning bush. 
And in this conversation that's taking place, God says, hey, Moses says, hey, God, who, who should I say is sending me to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? And he says, you tell them the I am has sent you. And what Jesus is doing is that he's linking himself to that. I'm telling you this, church, for this reason. If people know in your workplace that you're a Christian or they talk or in, in uh, your communities, they're going to say, well, Jesus never said he was God. There's no place that he ever said that he actually was God. This is one of the clearest examples you have, as well as just probably a half dozen more I could pull up for you in the Bible. It's important, church, that you know who Jesus is. Jesus is the most important person in the world. And what you think about him is going to determine how you live your life. If, if Jesus isn't God, what does he know about human flourishing? If Jesus is not God, he is just another false messiah in a long line of failed messiahs who is telling you how to live right and what you're supposed to do and yet has no idea what he's talking about. But if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the creator of your life, and he knows what human flourishing looks like, he knows what, what robs you, he knows what brings life. He knows you, he knows me. Jesus is God and he doesn't mince words. The second thing we get from this though, church, with this idea of restoration we're looking at is this. The second Adam succeeds where the first Adam failed. Right? We see in the first Adam how he let sin enter the world by his disobedience. And we see in the second Adam, Jesus, how he defeats sin by his obedience. In fact, Paul would even go ahead to say later on that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. That's why I tell you, church, and I'm trying to stir your affections, that Jesus is so committed to your restoration that he was willing to die for it. You die for things you find value in. God finds value in your life. God finds value in your restoration. We see in Adam how our relationship with God was fractured. We see in the second Adam, Jesus, how our relationship with God is restored. Right? Let's not forget why Jesus is doing this. He is doing this, first and foremost, to bring your relationship back to God. To get rid of that chasm that's between us and God. The second Adam, he is successful in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. Right? Can we just acknowledge this for a second? Because this scene is interesting. As we're talking about victory taking place, Jesus is being arrested. Can we acknowledge for a second that victory doesn't always look like we think it's going to look? Right? I mean, it even says in the section that we looked at, Jesus knew all of this would happen. It's true. You read the Gospels. You'll go ahead and you'll read that, hey, Jesus is telling his apostles, hey, just so you know, guys, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be put on a cross. And I'm going to raise on the third day. And it says that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. How did they not see this? They didn't see it because they had a different idea of what this Messiah is supposed to be than what he actually is. They had a different idea of what victory looks like other than what we have an idea of what victory looks like, right? We know how the story ends as well. We know one day it's going to result around a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more pain or tears or suffering anymore. We know this. And yet when we look at our cities, we think, uh, 
We don't really know how it's going. This doesn't look like victory. Uh, what I pull away, as I was just kind of thinking about this text for, for my life and for us as a church, I pull away with kind of thinking this, that I believe that Jesus' idea for us, for restoration in this world, often resolves in the people of God taking on voluntary suffering for the purposes of greater restoration down the road. There's plenty of examples I could pull from you, church, as far as what that looks like, but just a few examples to give you is this. One of them's Corey Tenboom. I quote her a lot. I, she is a huge hero of mine. I can't wait to meet her in heaven someday. If you don't know Corey Tenboom's story, she lived in the Netherlands. She was hiding Jews during Nazi Germany during World War II, eventually got caught, was then held, took, taken captive into a concentration camp, lost all of her family basically in a concentration camp. And then once World War II was over, she eventually had a fairly prolific career as a teacher and a writer. And one day, she's at a church, kind of like ours, and she's teaching to a congregation, kind of like you, and she's teaching on the topic of forgiveness. She gets done with her talk on forgiveness, and someone walks up, and it was one of the guards in the concentration camp. He says, man, isn't the forgiveness of God wonderful? Puts his hand out to shake hers. Like, this, that's horrible. You love how God just kind of lines those things up, right? Appreciate it, God. So she shakes his hand. It was really hard for her, but she did. She shook his hand. This is what she says of the experience. She says, And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. You think about her story. Uh, my generation is particularly right now, and it's the, kind of the social media age is marked by just being so antagonistic, being so upset. Like, I'm not going to forgive this guy. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. Why would I give that to him? Oh, because God and Christ forgave you. And in reaction to that, I, I, I'm commanded, it's not just a suggestion, to forgive others. And she says that the, the healing of the world hinges upon not your strength, but on God's strength. And God's strength to empower you to live a life you cannot live on your own. This is how the world is healed. This is how the world is restored. Another example, George Washington Carver. I just learned about this guy a month ago. I was so surprised by this. Born in 1864, lived in 1943, African-American man here in the U.S., became an agricultural scientist, and he discovered a cure for the ground of cotton fields to help prevent soil depletion. You want to talk about restoration right off the bat. Cotton fields often be work, being worked by slaves. And how easy it would have been for him to say, no, this is God's judgment against these people. I'm not going to help them figure out how to make their ground better, how to make their ground operate. No, but, but operating in a spirit of love, operating in a spirit of kindness and generosity and, and working as an agricultural scientist. By the way, he was a, Bible, he was a Sunday school teacher for 30 plus years. Just add that to, to, to how amazing this guy is. He ends up finding a cure to help prevent soil depletion so that they continue to have good crops year in, year out. Here's what he says. Without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless, right? Without God to open up my eyes, I, I wouldn't be able to do this. 
Only alone can I draw close enough to God to discover his secrets. When I'm with God in prayer and, and, and in solitude and, and reading my Bible, that's in those moments where I begin to unpack these secrets that he's wanting to reveal to me. Let me ask you, Mercy Fellowship, what voluntary suffering can you take on to help with the restoration of this world? What does that look like for you? What are some areas in your life where you really want to get pent up and enraged and, and go forward and yet what would be best for the healing of the world for not just your generation but for generations to come would be for you to live in a spirit of forgiveness and kindness and compassion and imitating Jesus in all that you do. I believe God wants us to play the long game, Mercy Fellowship. I really do. And so what that means is this. It means that if we live this way as a follower of Jesus, we might not see the harvest from the seeds we sow in our lifetime. But it might be a generation or two down the road where there's something amazing that takes place, not just in this city, but in the globe of restoration that takes place. God, he's invested in the long game of restoring this world, regardless of whether we see it or not. So this is what God does. God is in the business of restoration and restoring of your life. And as we continue to track this theme of gardens, we'll go ahead and conclude with the last one. We looked at the Garden of Eden. We looked at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, he eventually goes to the cross. And when he's buried, he's buried in a garden. Once again, the Bible's a specific book. It means to bring up things specifically for a reason. And uh, as he's buried... Mary goes on Sunday morning to go pay her respects to her dead leader. And when she goes, she finds the tomb rolled away. She runs in. She doesn't see Jesus' body. So she goes back and she tells Peter and John, the leader of their group. They run over. They don't see Jesus' body either. And they just walk away. They don't know what to make of this. And this is what it says. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Pay attention to verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. That's so good. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I love the Bible. I've been trying to hammer it to you guys, and let me just reiterate it. The Bible, it is a specific book. It is meaning to communicate to us things. It doesn't have dead words in the Bible. And when it communicates to us that Mary was supposing Jesus to be the gardener, it's wanting us to pick up on this theme of gardens that we've been unpacking. And what is it? The sustainer of the garden, the gardener, God himself, is seeking to have a relationship with his people. A new world is created because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I, I, I would like to go ahead and try to give you a paragraph to explain this, but what I'm going to do is back out and let G.K. Chesterton explain this to you. Uh, he's way better with words than I am. And he says this, For in that grave, the grave that Jesus died in, for in that grave, the whole of that great and glorious humanity, which we called antiquity, was gathered up and covered over. And in that place, it was buried. It was the end of a very great thing called human history, the history that was merely human. The mythologies and the philosophies, they were buried there. The gods and the heroes and the sages. In the great Roman phase, they had lived, but as they could only live, so they could only die. And they were dead. On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to a place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, just like Genesis 1. And he walks in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. Mercy Fellowship, do you want to play your part in the restoration of this world? Do you want to play a part in the, res the restoration that, that God desires not just for your life, but for the life of others? The first step for some of you is this, that, that you need to acknowledge you are a sinner. You need to acknowledge I am not living to what God is wanting me to live. That, that I am off track, that I need to repent of my sins, acknowledge that Jesus as creator knows what's best for my life and trust in that. That's the first step. The second step for some of you is this. You have yet to be baptized. You have yet to acknowledge and publicly your allegiance to Jesus. This is something that, that we do within our church. It's something we did last week, and I'm so grateful for it. But this is something that all followers of Jesus are called to do, to make public your confession that I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to that old world. I belong to the new world that's wanting to be restored let me tell you this, for you followers of Jesus, what's your part in restoring this world? I'm going to make it really easy for you. I'm not going to burden you down with a bunch of things. One, you don't need to be a minister. Now, we need more ministers. I'm kind of tired up here preaching a lot of the time. I would like another preacher. That would be great. But you don't need to be a minister. How do you play your part in restoring this world? You play your part, church, by loving God and loving people. That's it. Love God. You love people. How do you do this? Well, when it applies to your job, what, how, whatever your job is, and hopefully you have some purposeful work in your job, whatever it is, you're, you're working as if you're working unto the Lord, which means you're going to give it your all. You're going to give your best at your work. For those of you that have kids, it means this, that you're going to raise your kids up in a knowledge of the Lord. You don't determine their salvation. God does but it's merely your job as the parent just to raise them up in a knowledge of who God is. This church is how the world is restored to what God wants it to be. This is how a broken world gets mended. It is by people placing their faith and trust in Jesus and joining in with the restoration of all things. Jesus in Revelation, and I'll conclude with this idea, Jesus in the book of Revelation, it says this, that when... when the new heaven arrives, it's going to be a place where there's no more pain or tears or suffering anymore. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. 
And we translate that as the church as saying, oh, well, behold, someday I will make things new. And hopefully what you see from the gardens and hopefully what you understand from Jesus is this. It's not someday that he's going to make things new. It's he's making things new now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are being made new now. And this is how the restoration of the world takes place. Let me pray for us this morning.